Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 34. We're going to talk about a recent Supreme Court case just from this last term a few months ago called Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. This is episode 44 of The Law, but it is the first episode of The Law, broadcast in conjunction with Speakeasy Ideas. So this presents a good opportunity, and I'll go over what this podcast is all about and a little bit about me for any new listeners. So I've been practicing law since 1992. And it didn't take me long to notice how many commentators were absolutely wrong when they discussed the law. For exa- example, the latest Supreme Court decision. And I don't mean arguably wrong, because you know people can discuss what a certain phrase means or constitutional provision means, and there's legitimate arguments to be had. I don't mean that. I mean like it was clear they didn't know the facts. They didn't know the actual holding of the case. And it's clear that they hadn't read it. And this really became an epidemic with the explosion of cable news, talk radio, the internet, and ever since the Citizens United decision, which came out in 2010, that case has been blatantly misrepresented by the popular media and less than on it politicians, and it still is. There was a Democratic debate last night where it is still misrepresented. So one of the things I wanted to do when I started this podcast was to explain what cases really meant, and I went over Citizens United in episode two of the law, and I encourage people to read actual cases. Reading cases is a major theme in this podcast, and that's why I read them, it's why I go over them. Because having an opinion on a case one has not read is like giving a recommendation to a restaurant to which one has not been, or describing a bottle of wine you have never tasted. No one would give any credence to such a recommendation or a description, yet people listen to commentators on the news, etc., radio, talk radio, and they do give credence to people who clearly haven't read an opinion. So we should treat the law like we treat restaurants when we're describing them or a bottle of wine. If you haven't read it, if you haven't been there, if you haven't tasted it, you don't really have an informed opinion at all, to be polite. So I I go over these cases, not so you'll take my word for what they mean, but I I go over them so you might be interested enough to read certain cases yourself. Nobody's going to read all these cases. Only crazy people like me do. But I always leave a link to the actual text of whatever case I'm discussing in the show notes. There'll be a link to this case, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, right below in the notes. And the page I usually send people to is oyez.com. That's O-Y-E-Z.com. And that's a reference to what the bailiff usually says when the judge comes into a courtroom. Oyez, 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 the honorable such and such is presiding, whatever. So that's what that means, oyez.com. And on that site, it'll have a summary of it. But then on the left side of the page, There'll be an actual link to the recording of the oral arguments, which is pretty amazing when you listen to some of these things. They're great. It's great education. And then under the link to the actual oral oral arguments, they're usually about an hour. That's the time limit for them. There'll be a link to the majority opinion and to any dissenting opinions, if there are any, right, or concurring opinions. They'll be there as well. So it's there for anybody to read, to go over if they wish to. But I provide it every single time because that's my point. Read these things. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the word of people you hear on the news or the talk radio or read on the internet, God forbid. Now, the prior 43 episodes of this podcast will soon be available via Speakeasy Ideas. So when I reference a prior episode, it'll be easy to find. If not already, if it's not already there, 
soon they will be, the entire archives will be available via Speakeasy Ideas. So glad you're very listening. Glad to be on this new platform. I'm excited about interacting with you guys. Tell me what you guys think. And you can follow this podcast on social media, which is a way to contact me and have a discussion. So on Twitter, it's at the law, DKW. And the Facebook page for this podcast is facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. And I would love to hear from you. Please check out the Facebook page and like it, review it, comment, subscribe, share, all that stuff if you are so inclined. So let's get into it. We're going to discuss Franchise Tax Board of California versus Gilbert P. Hyatt. And I know what you are thinking because I would be if I was listening to this. Why are we discussing a case about taxes? Taxes are boring. You are correct. That is an excellent question and they are boring. And I assure you, I will rarely, if ever again, discuss a case with tax in the title. The tax law is not exciting. But while the facts of this case arise from a tax dispute, the real significance of this case is not about the taxes. The real significance of it is about precedent, about the doctrine of stare decisis. And that's just a fancy Latin phrase lawyers like to use because it makes them seem smart. Stare decisis simply means to stand by things decided. So the usual practice for the Supreme Court is to abide by whatever decision it has made in the past, even if the majority of the court now thinks the old case was wrong. That's stare decisis. We're going to uphold prior decisions, even if we think they're wrong now. Now, they don't always do that. The Supreme Court will overturn precedent, but it's not usual. One famous case where they did overturn it was in Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned the judicially created doctrine of separate but equal, which was espoused in Plessy v. Ferguson. So Brown v. Board of Education overturned that Supreme Court case. And we discussed Plessy in episode seven. And then the very next week, we discussed Brown, which overturned it in, in episode eight. Some great history about that type of thing. So check them out. And in this case, Franchise Tax Board case, probably call it Hyatt because that's the guy's name. In this Hyatt case, the court overturned a precedent. So this is a big deal. It doesn't happen that often. And in this particular case, many commentators on the quote-unquote progressive side, and I'm making air quotes because I don't think that word really means anything, but to the extent it does, there's a lot of concern about this tax case, and it involves state sovereignty. Because if the Supreme Court is willing to overturn this case from 40 years ago, are they going to be more willing to overturn other cases? The Supreme Court has already decided. One particular case may jump to mind. In this particular case, the Supreme Court overturned a 40-year-old precedent from 1979, Nevada versus Hall. Just six years prior to that precedent, that Nevada v. Hall, which has been overturned in this case, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, so just six years before. So that is the concern of, of many people that are commentating on this case. They're not really concerned about the tax issues or state sovereignty. They're concerned about the court's willingness to overturn cases, which they did here, and they talked about why, and the dissent talked about why they should not. And one point I think is important, a lot of these commentators, including the four-person dissent here, the five-to-four decision, they talk about stare decisis as if it's gospel, that it should be held in very high regard, as in, hey, Roe versus Wade has been decided. We can't overturn that. That is decided, stare decisis, precedent. Don't mess with it. But I guarantee you, many of these commentators and some, at least some of these Supreme Court justices would be willing to toss out that concern about some cases that have already been decided, like Citizens United. I guarantee you some of the people demanding adherence to precedent when it comes to Roe versus Wade would all of a sudden not be concerned about precedent at all when it came to Citizens United. So perhaps their respect that they're so insistent upon concerning precedent and stare decisive is a bit selective. All right, in Hyatt, 5-4 majority decided to overturn Nevada versus Hall. 
a Supreme Court case decided in 79. So the Supreme Court tally, what I almost always do, and for new listeners, I like to go down the roster of justices who are on the majority and when applicable on a dissent. And I will also go over like who appointed the the justice, some other information, but I've done that for this Supreme Court on a couple earlier cases because we've gone over some decisions from this most recent term. So the majority opinion that overturned precedent, not upholding stare decisis, was written by Clarence Thomas. He was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. The dissent was written by Stephen Breyer, and he was joined by Elena Kagan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Sonia Sotomayor. You might notice an ideological split between the majority and the dissent. And like I said, this case isn't really about taxes. And by that, I mean whether or not Hyatt is legally obligated to pay the tax bill isn't the legal matter before the court. Not this time. This is the third time this particular case has been to the Supreme Court, and we'll go over that. So I'll quote Thomas in the majority. He lays out the issue. He wrote, quote, This case, now before us for the third time, requires us to decide whether the Constitution permits a state to be sued by a private party without its consent in the courts of a different state. We hold that it does not and overrule our decision to the contrary in Nevada versus Hall. So in other words, do states have sovereign immunity from being sued in another state by an individual? Thomas and the majority say states do have that immunity. They overturn that other case, which means in this particular case, Hyatt cannot sue this California government agency in Nevada. So who is Gilbert P. Hyatt? He contested a California state tax board bill he did not think he was legally obligated to pay, which brings us to the other name party in the case, the Franchise Tax Board of California. They argue Mr. Hyatt is legally obligated to pay this tax bill. So how did Hyatt and the tax board get to the Supreme Court? It's a long story, and I'll attempt to just hit the highlights. Thomas explains, this is right from the opinion, quote, In the early 1990s, that's 27 years ago, right? Respondent Gilbert Hyatt earned substantial income from a technology patent for a computer formed on a single integrated circuit chip. Although Hyatt's claim was later canceled, his royalties in the interim totaled millions of dollars. Prior to receiving the patent, Hyatt had been a longtime resident of California. But in 91, Hyatt sold his house in California and rented an apartment, registered to vote, obtained insurance, opened a bank account, and acquired a driver's license in Nevada. And he filed his 91 and 92 tax returns there. And he claimed Nevada, which collects no personal income tax, as his primary place of residence. Seems like a smart move to me, right? So Hyatt has been litigating this for decades. So he made millions of dollars off this patent. But how much could he have left after decades of litigation? I I don't know. Maybe he had money from someplace else, too. But I think the cost of justice is something to think about in these cases. You know, what are the real-world applications of our legal justice system? Um, He had millions of dollars. Most people don't, especially when the other party is a government agency. Money is not a concern to them. They just don't care because it's not their money. Back to this case. Thomas writes, Petitioner, Franchise Tax Board of California, which we'll just call the board from now on, is the state agency responsible for assessing personal income tax. They suspected that Hyatt's move was a sham. Thus, in 93, the board launched an audit to determine whether Hyatt underpaid his 91 and 92 California state income taxes by misrepresenting his residency. In the course of the audit, employees of the board traveled to Nevada, to conduct interviews with Hyatt's estranged family members. Quick aside, why are they estranged? Why is that even mentioned in the opinion? He's got estranged family members. Is there a lifetime movie about those circumstances? So these tax agents from California come to Nevada, interview his estranged family members, shared his personal information with business contacts. In total, the board sent more than 100 letters and demands for information to third parties. The board ultimately concluded that Hyatt had not moved to Nevada, 
until April of 92 and owed California more than $10 million in back taxes, interest, and penalties. Hyatt protested the audit before the board, which upheld the audit, imagine that, after an 11-year administrative proceeding. An 11-year administrative proceeding, that's insane. Thomas goes on. The appeal of that decision remains pending before the California Office of Tax Appeals. It's insane. How could that state proceeding still be pending? And remember, this is the third time this case has been all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking about a nightmare. So those are the facts, the basic facts. Now we get into the legal question about state sovereignty. Thomas explains. In 98, Hyatt sued the board in Nevada State Court for torts he alleged the agency committed during the audit, dealing with giving personal information to other people and all of these letters the government sent trying to get information on him. The board argued that under the full faith and credit clause, Nevada courts must apply California statute, which immunized the board from liability for all injuries caused by its tax collection. Imagine that. California's got a statute that protects California from the injuries it causes. There you have it. So in other words, back in 98, the tax board said Nevada can't do anything to us, California, because the California statutes preclude us, California, the tax board, from being sued. Nevada didn't have any such law, so Hyatt is suing them in Nevada. Now, just for reference, because whenever the, the Constitution is mentioned, I like to cite it, go to it. What are the exact words of it? So originally back in 98, tax board says that Nevada must give full faith and credit to California statutes, which prohibit them from any liability. Full faith and credit clause is an Article 4, Section 1 of the Constitution. The applicable part of that says, full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state. So that issue went all the way up to the Supreme Court. That was the first time in 2003. And there, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, unanimously held that the full faith and credit clause did not prohibit Nevada from applying its own laws to the case against this California government entity. Thomas notes, talking about this 2003 case, Hyatt 1, because that's the first time it went up. He's discussing Hyatt 1 here in Hyatt 3. The board didn't ask them to overrule Nevada v. Hall back in 03 which they're doing now, 16 years later, in this 2019 case, which they went on. So the bottom line for the parties, the tax board, and Hyatt, California cannot be sued in Nevada or any other state by an individual. So if Hyatt wants to continue this case because he lost here in 2019 in Hyatt 3, and assuming there hasn't been some kind of time bar or some other bar that precludes him from filing a suit in California, that's what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to start over again if he even is allowed to. But of course, like we mentioned, California has got a statute that precludes any liability on behalf of its government agencies. So after Hyatt won in 2003, Hyatt was allowed to sue California in Nevada court. They had a four-month jury trial. Four months. And at the end of that, the jury awarded Hyatt $490 million. Good news for Hyatt, right? Alas, no, because the Nevada Supreme Court on appeal reduced the award to $1 million dollars and remanded back to the Nevada trial court on another issue. So it's still a million bucks, not $490 million. But he doesn't collect yet, and they don't even go back to the Nevada trial court because the tax board appealed that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court from the Nevada Supreme Court. This is Hyatt 2. And in Hyatt 2, the Supreme Court remanded again. In Hyatt 2, Thomas wrote about that opinion. So he's writing about Hyatt 2 in Hyatt 3, the 2019 opinion. He wrote, Although the question was briefed and argued, the court was equally divided on whether to overrule Hall and thus affirm the jurisdiction of the Nevada State Court. On remand, the Nevada Supreme Court instructed the trial court to enter damages in accordance with the statutory cap for Nevada agencies. All right, so that cap was $50,000. So Hyatt went from a verdict of $490 million to a $1 million reward 
from the Nevada Supreme Court the first time, and then to a $50,000 reward after the U.S. Supreme Court sent it back. So it's quite a reduction. So from that ruling, where the Nevada Supreme Court said, no, you can only get $50,000 because of Nevada statutes, the California Tax Board appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court again, and they heard it for the third time, which is the case we're talking about now. And Thomas writes, the sole question presented in this 2019 appeal, Hyatt 3, sole question is whether Nevada versus Hall should be overruled. So in this case that we're talking about, Hyatt 3 just decided in 2019, the majority held, and Thomas wrote, quote, Nevada versus Hall is contrary to our constitutional design and the understanding of sovereign immunity shared by the states that ratified the constitution. Stare decisis does not compel continued adherence to this erroneous precedent. That's huge. We therefore overrule Hall and hold that states retain their sovereign immunity from private suits brought in the courts of other states. And they give us this conclusion at the beginning of the opinion. We're going to overturn Nevada versus Hall, disregard that precedent because it was wrong. And then they go on and give us many, many pages about the explanation of how they got there. And I, I they do this a lot in Supreme Court cases, and I think they do it so litigants can see if they've won before they have to read the entire thing. <laughs> they can see the conclusion close to the front, and then they can read about how it got there. But yeah, not knowing if you won or not by reading you know, sometimes 20, 30 and sometimes more than that pages. So they tell you right up front. So Hyatt does not have the ability to sue California in Nevada. Thomas goes on. Hall, prior Supreme Court case from 79, held that the Constitution does not bar private suits against a state in the courts of another state. The opinion conceded that states were immune from such actions at the time of the founding, but it nonetheless concluded that nothing implicit in the Constitution requires states to adhere to the sovereign immunity doctrine as it prevailed when the Constitution was adopted. Okay, that's from this current opinion. Like I mentioned, the court goes on to explain why they're overturning Hall, and it is an interesting historical survey of the law of sovereign immunity at the time of the founding and how the Constitution affected that law if at all, and the four-person dissent does its own survey of that his same history, comes to a different conclusion and would not have overturned Hall. They would allow Hyatt to sue the state of California Franchise Tax Board in Nevada. So while the tax issues and the sovereign immunity issues are important and they're interesting, I'm going to focus on the notion of stare decisis itself because that also is very important and it's very timely. I've mentioned it in prior episodes several times because if the Supreme Court got something wrong, I'd say 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or whenever, like Plessy v. Ferguson, which the Supreme Court did overturn. What makes overruling such a case appropriate, and when should the court stick with an incorrect decision because of the value of precedent, because of stare decisis? I'm more inclined to Thomas' view. If it's wrong, the general idea should be to correct it. Let's compare it to, like, physics. If there was an idea in physics that's been accepted for 100 years, but a modern scientist proves that that was wrong, Scientists aren't going to pretend the old idea is correct just because it has been around for 100 years. Of course not. That'd be absurd. But to some extent, that is what the dissent is arguing here. So even if Hall was wrong, and they don't admit that, by the way, but if it was wrong, they argue, it should not be overturned. Now, I have a problem with that, especially like when I mentioned some of these justices would gladly overturn Citizens United. So is it, it's a matter of degree, perhaps? How, how wrong is the case? The more wrong it is, the more need to overturn it. And that's entirely a subjective matter. There's no objective standard to determine that. I'll touch on just a little bit of the history. I'll note that the majority, written by Thomas, concluded that, quote, the founding generation thus took as a given that states could not be hailed involuntarily before each other's courts. 
So the majority held, in this case, that California could not be hailed into Nevada court against its will. So sovereign immunity is a thing. It's a historical reality that Clarence Thomas and the majority are acknowledging and applying. But the concept of sovereign immunity in 2019, in modern times, is a complete anachronism. It still exists in some form, but it absolutely should not. It has been abrogated by the state, but it still exists. The notion is that the state can do no wrong, and therefore it can't be sued. Can't do wrong, you can't sue it, because it didn't do anything wrong. Now, that's ludicrous. And this idea also touches on the horrendous qualified immunity doctrine, which was created by the Supreme Court in another case. Check out episode four of The Law for More on that travesty of qualified immunity. But sovereign immunity should be and can be and has in part been abrogated by statute. Sovereign immunity goes back centuries to the idea of the divine right of kings. If kings are picked by God and God is infallible, then so is the king. So the king could do no wrong. He couldn't have done anything to hurt anyone wrongly, so the king can't be sued. And if you think that idea would have disappeared when something like the American Revolution took place and we defeated the monarchy, but it didn't. The idea survived just the sovereign in place of the king, or the state as sovereign in place of the king as sovereign. Sovereign is now the state. And legislatures have passed statutes to abrogate it, but they haven't entirely done away with it. Now, for example, in Colorado, if a government agent driving a government car on government business runs a red light and runs into you, traditional sovereign immunity would preclude you from suing them. Government cannot be sued. They're immune completely. But the Colorado legislature, and I think most other states, have done something to the effect of what Colorado has done. They enacted a statute that allows you to sue the state for their agent's negligence act. But unlike if a regular person just runs into your car, you have to give the state notice within 180 days that you might sue them. And if you don't give that notice, you can't. So you don't have to do that for a regular person. You just have to do it for a government agent, the sovereign. So the state still gets more protection than us mere commoners. So back to Hyatt, which deals with sovereign immunity. Thomas writes, after going over all this history, with the historical record and precedent against him, Hyatt defends Hall, Hall, the prior Supreme Court case, on the basis of stare decisis, which is what we're talking about. Thomas says, but stare decisis is not an inexorable command, and we have held that it is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution, because our interpretation can be altered only by constitutional amendment. That's an important conclusion, and I agree with that. Basically saying, if the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution wrongly, there's no way to fix that unless you amend the Constitution. So if we get that wrong, we need to fix it. And in this case, that's what they're doing. At least that's Thomas and the majority's view on this. We got the Constitution wrong in 1979, let's fix it. And that's in comparison to if they get a statute wrong, Congress can just fix the statute. That's a lot easier than amending the Constitution. So the distinction between getting the Constitution wrong and getting a statute wrong is, is significant. Thomas goes on. The court's precedents identify a number of factors to consider, four of which warrant mention here. The quality of the decision's reasoning, the old decision, its consistency with related decisions, legal development since the decision, and reliance of the public, basically, on the decision. So the court through Thomas says the history they just talked all about, take care of the first three factors in favor of overruling fault. As to the fourth factor about reliance, Thomas says, well, some people have relied on it, and Hyatt certainly did rely on that case. Quote, Hyatt, unfortunately, will suffer the loss of two decades of litigation expenses and a final judgment against the board for its egregious conduct. Now, as an aside, Thomas and the majority is acknowledging that what the state did here is egregious. They go on. Case-specific costs, like the ones Hyatt have suffered, are not among the reliance interests that would persuade us to adhere to an incorrect resolution of an important constitutional question. Basically, they're saying, hey, Hyatt, man, we're sorry about this. You're getting screwed, 
But your misfortune doesn't mean we should keep applying the Constitution incorrectly. Man, we feel bad. Sorry, man. You can't sue the California Franchise Tax Board in Nevada. So keep this quote from Thomas in mind. This is the money shot. This is the important part. Stare decisis does not compel continued adherence to erroneous precedent. I can't see anything wrong with that statement. Of course, how you apply it, it says it doesn't compel continued adherence to it, but it can allow you to continue to adhere to it. All right, so Breyer wrote the dissent, and I'll just get into the highlights of his disagreement and the dissenter's disagreement with Thomas and the majority. Breyer wrote in the dissent, can a private citizen sue one state in the courts of another? Normally, the answer to this question is no, because the state where the suit is brought will choose to grant its sister states immunity. But the question here is whether the federal constitution requires each state to grant its sister states immunity, or whether the constitution instead permits a state to grant or deny its sister states immunity as it chooses. Breyer goes on. We answered that question 40 years ago in Nevada versus Hall. The court in Hall held that the constitution took the permissive approach, leaving it up to each state to decide whether to grant or deny its sister state sovereign immunity. Today, the majority takes the contrary approach, the absolute approach, and overrules Hall. He says, I can find no good reason to overrule Hall, however, and I consequently dissent. So the minority here, the dissent, Breyer goes on for pages discussing the same applicable history like Thomas did in the majority. He points out to some slightly different history he thinks contradicts the majority's version of history. But outside of this dispute about history, the real dispute is about stare decisis. Breyer wrote, stare decisis requires us to follow Hall, not overrule it. You got a clear major disagreement in the applicability of precedent here. Breyer and the minority goes on, the dissent. Overruling a case always requires special justification. What could that justification be in this case? The majority does not find one. The majority, according to Breyer, believes that Hall was wrongly decided. But an argument that we got something wrong, even a good argument to that effect, cannot by itself justify scrapping settled precedent. So you can see the complete different view here. Breyer goes on, while reasonable jurists might disagree about whether Hall was correct, that very fact that Hall is not obviously wrong shows that today's majority is obviously wrong to overrule it. That's what the minority says. He goes on, the dissent, I understand that judges, including justices of this court, may decide cases wrongly. I also understand that later appointed judges may come to believe that earlier appointed judges made just such an error. And I understand that because opportunities correct old errors are rare, judges may be tempted to seize every opportunity to overrule cases they believe to have been wrongly decided. But the law can retain the necessary stability only if this court resists that temptation, only overruling prior precedent when the circumstances demand it. He says today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. Indeed, one does wonder. And of course, he's talking about Roe versus Wade or KCV Planned Parenthood, any of those things about abortion. That's what a large segment of the judicial commentators are concerned about. And that concern comes out of this tax case about sovereign immunity, because it's not really, I mean, it is about taxes and sovereign immunity, but the real import of this Hyatt case is the willingness of the Supreme Court majority here to overturn precedent. That's what's its issue. That's what's important. And again, a lot of these guys bemoaning the application and rejection. So again, a lot of these guys, commentators and Supreme Court justices here in the dissent, write as if they're very, very concerned about stare decisis and precedent. But if a case like Citizens United came before them again, that concern would vanish. So one does wonder which cases the court will overrule next, and we'll follow that very question, among a lot of others, right here on this podcast.
so stay tuned. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 44, Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. So let me know what you think about this podcast. You can find me at Twitter at The Law, DKW, and on the Facebook page for this podcast, facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. And of course, always at speakeasyideas.com, the webpage itself. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.